Welcome back to the Alpha Females Invest podcast, two females working in the finance industry searching for Alpha. My name is Clooney. And my name is Emily. And together we bring diversified perspectives from the buy and sell side of the finance world. As usual, any information discussed in this podcast is not financial advice. All opinions reflect those of the individuals. You should always read the PDS and talk to a financial advisor who can consider your personal circumstances before you invest. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only. So today on our podcast, we have Julian Hewitt. Julian is a private client advisor and broker with Bell Potter Securities Limited. He is accredited to advise in Australian and international equities, level one and two derivatives, fixed interest securities, listed and unlisted managed investment, government bonds and debentures. Julian provides professional, customised advice regarding equity investments, specialising in portfolio management and stock selection for his clients. Because he doesn't think his job is busy enough, he's also currently enrolled in the CFA program level two and recently completed and passed his FASIA exam. As our listeners are now hopefully very well aware of by now, one of our key goals of this podcast is to elevate our peers' knowledge, especially with regard to managing our personal finances and understanding all the different ways in which we can do that. So today on our show, Em and I are super keen to dive into the role and benefits of having a broker. Welcome, Jules, to the show. It's great to have you. Hi, Clunes. Hi, Em. Thanks for having me. So as an avid listener yourself to this podcast, I know you know that the first question we ask every time is, is a recurring question and it's definitely one of my favourites. So to kick us off today, could you please share with us your most embarrassing career moment? Well, I'm glad there's only one of those I have to share, but I'll, I'll definitely kick you off with one. So look, to start off, I think it would be as, at a starting point in my career when I was a junior or what's called a dealer's assistant. The dealer's assistant often has to execute trades or set up accounts or do that sort of thing. But early on in my career, I made a $700 error to the advisor and little did I know that the error goes onto the advisor's balance sheet. So that was <laughs> um, a bit of a shock for me. Whoops. But I think that serves them right for getting their junior to execute their trades. So <laughs> anyway, a bit of just desserts. Well, I'm glad that doesn't occur in the Insto world. Otherwise, I'm sure someone could be making $200 million errors, which, um, <laughs> Absolutely. you know, if that was on my balance sheet, I'm sure it would be coming off pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Jules, obviously you, you work with Bell Potter, but for our audience who isn't familiar, can you just give us a brief introduction of what the firm does and how it fits into the financial system? Okay. Yeah. So, Bell's or Bell Potter is one of Australia's largest full-service stockbrokers. So it's a pretty much a one-stop shop to cater to any client's needs, institutional or retail. I work in the retail equities division um, as a stockbroker and client advisor, but there's also an ECM team, an Insto team, futures, FX, and a whole bunch of products. So really, if you want, want to do finance, come to Bells, we'll sort you out. Shameless plug. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give us a bit of background and explain exactly what is the role of the broker? And I guess second to that, what's the key difference between a financial advisor and a broker. Are you guys just a one-trick pony or can you offer both services to your clients? Okay, this is a tricky one which I need to be careful how I answer, but I'll try. To simply define the two, historically, the role of a broker is to buy and sell shares, whereas the role of a financial advisor is to advise the client what to buy and what to sell, when to do it and how much. 
Over the years, particularly following the Hain Banking Royal Commission, we've seen a bit of a conversion between these two definitions, but one thing becoming the main focus of a financial advisor or broker, can you guys give me a guess? Oh, I'm, I'm going to go broker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what's the focus though? Like if you're an advisor or a broker, what's the main focus or what's the most important to get thing? The best, to get the best outcome for your clients. Absolutely. So it doesn't matter what you're doing. The main thing is putting your client's interests first. So it doesn't matter whether you're broking shares or telling them what to do, the client's numero uno. And depending on what you need to do, I mean, you can put their interests first in different sort of ways. So for me, it really depends on what their needs are. And, and some of my clients know what they exactly want to do, whereas others really need to be handheld through different situations. And others, I'm simply executing for them and offering my service in that way. Some like to just have the ability to ring up, pick up the phone and ring me and just ask what I'm suggesting them and others really need me to talk them through it. Sometimes a common thought of what a broker is, if you're a buyer, you need to find the seller and find the opposing trade. But I think that originates from the days of the trading floor when that sort of thing actually mattered, where it doesn't now because everything's executed on an exchange, everything's electronic. Most stocks that I deal in for a retail client is particularly liquid. And that sort of thing would only matter if you're dealing with a top shareholder of a small cap company where you need to offload a larger parcel of shares or even if you're crossing a larger stock in the blue chip world where that sort of thing is important, crossing a large line of stock, but it's not particularly in the retail world per se. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess just trying to relate it to our investors, you know, a lot of us are familiar with the different trading platforms where we can execute shares and, and execute them relatively cheaply. And, you know, I guess why would the average person or what are the advantages of using a broker like yourself versus actually just going in and doing the trade themselves through one of these trading platforms? I guess what we're trying to say here is how do you differentiate yourself in what's a pretty competitive market at the moment? Yeah, good question, Em. I think the key thing in terms of value proposition, what clients are after is the advice. If you know what you're doing and you're a smaller punter, I mean, typically you can really get that service through an online broker and my services are not really needed. But if you're dealing with sort of your self-managed super fund or larger savings or just an investment account, really where I can value add is by giving clients advice. A lot of people don't have the time to monitor market movements or corporate actions or that sort of thing. So yeah, it's really the advice component and what degree of advice that the client needs, whether it's just a little bit of handholding, whether it's asset allocation or whether it's just my opinion. Some people just want to pick up the phone. I would also argue that I can execute better than the individual punter on an online broking service because I see a live market can execute trades clearer than um, someone operating on an online platform. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I guess in some of the micro-investing or micro-trading platforms, sometimes you don't actually see the underlying price that you're getting. There's a little bit of lack of transparency there. So I guess what you're saying is you can see the market and really get best execution for your clients, which can roll through to the performance of the trade. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if it is larger sums of money, if we're talking in a stock that deals, say, $100,000 a day, if you're dealing in a lot of the volume of the day, then you can really impact the market. And a typical person who deals in that stock might move that without knowing and really worsen the price. And 
paying that sort of higher amount of brokerage, you're going to pay more in, in paying the higher price. I think that's a really interesting point as well. And I think the other key aspect to that is that advice component. You know, even though Em and I both work in finance, we potentially don't know how we should structure a self-managed super fund or a portfolio for our own needs in the future. So I think that point is really pertinent. And um, I'm sure when the time comes that we have self-managed super funds, we'll be looking into all the different types of alternatives. So I guess like going on from there, you know, if people do wish to seek financial advice, how should they go about choosing an advisor in your opinion? Well, I think a good starting point is going to the ASX website. You can bring up a list of all the different brokers, whether it's full service or online, and then just going through even familiar names, which would be a good starting point, and then go by ringing up, finding a suitable advisor. If you're new to the finance industry, I'd really recommend a face-to-face meeting just because it's where you're handing over your hard-earned money to someone to invest, and it's really about building that trust with someone. Some people can do that thing over the phone, but I'd really suggest meeting face-to-face just to to get in front of them and see the whites of their eyes. So that would be my recommendation. And I just on a point on the earlier question I, I just thought of, if you're investing your own money, it can be quite emotional, whereas if you have a broker or financial advisor, you really can have them manage the emotional component of it. And when you become emotional with investing, you can sell in the wrong moments or buy in the wrong moments. Whereas if you have that third party just to give you a bit of guidance, that can often save you multiples of the fee you're paying them. So that would just be another point I'd mention. No, that's a really important point, particularly when I know in my personal trading, you know, there's always been circumstances where I've sold too early or not bought enough or gone in hard enough. And I think it is that emotional roller coaster. You start to see it trending down and, you know, the market freaks out. And so you pull your money when really the best thing might have been to leave it in there. So I think that's super important because we're all highly emotive when it comes to our own money and our returns and just our psychology when it comes to money is fascinating. You know, we hate losses more than we like gains. So it is really important to have an external party, I guess, assisting. Well, a good analogy is actually if you're at the supermarket, typically people go for what's on sale, but it's not that in the share market. People usually freak out and and not go for the shares that look like bargains, but the opposite (laughs) when you're in the shops. But anyway. No, that's, that's a really good one. So I guess we wanted to ask a little bit about your client's behavior. So What's the typical time frame that a client might invest with? Do you have clients that are short-term and both longer-term holders? I guess what's your key client or is it all about what depends on the best outcome? Yeah, look, I mean, it really depends. I mean, some clients will come to me just to use my execution services and and that could be to sell some shares that they've inherited from a, a deceased family member or other people come to me with a parcel of money that they've inherited and they say, look, I want to buy some property and I'm only in the market for a year. And when you get these narrow timeframes, that's when it can be a bit risky because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in the markets. And anyone that does, I think, is sort of talking through their ears. So you've really got to sort of manage your client's expectation with a timeframe and be quite reasonable. And with equity markets, as we know, they can go up and they can go down. And managing that risk with your client is very important and just to manage their expectations too. So, I mean, typically a client, I would say you wouldn't want to promise anything in less than, say, one to three years just because you don't know what's going to happen around the corner and I don't. So, 
given that sort of shorter time frame, you can manage the portfolio from an asset allocation perspective accordingly and also manage their risk. So if some client is looking for a shorter time frame, say one to three years on the basis they want to purchase a house, which is what a few of my friends are saying to me, I've really got to say, well, look, if it is for a house, do you really want to be in the equity markets and risky capital? So sometimes it, it is better off not going into the markets on those sorts of things. But other clients who are managing larger amounts of money and it's to supplement their income, they can bear market risk and be rewarded in the longer term. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And, you know, I do think there's definitely with a lot of new and innovative sort of financial apps or, you know, trading systems out there, there's becoming, I think, a bit more of the mentality of quicker turnover. But um, I guess if you look back on history and you do see all sort of the statistics, it it does seem buy and hold is the way to go. (laughs) And, you know, particularly a lot of people we know started investing in the lows of March 2020 and they've had a pretty good investing experience to date and they haven't had to weather a storm yet. And I guess, you know, I have friends who are looking at wanting what to do with their house deposit and they're like, oh, well, equity markets, it's it's worked for me so far, so I might as well put all my money in there. But I guess, again, coming back to that emotive response, you need someone to kind of say, actually, this might be a better investment option for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the people that bought in, in March last year were very lucky and they just nailed it, buy low, sell high. That's all you got to do. It's actually pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, I think you'll be out of a job pretty soon if that's all you've got to do, buy low, sell high. <laughs> I reckon we can end the podcast there, Em. <laughs> so, Jules, for your background, we have spoken about the benefits of passive investing with a few of our guests, but specifically Sarah from Stockspot. And I guess, obviously, being a broker, you would encourage active investing. Perhaps I'm wrong, but in your opinion, what are the key benefits of active investing? Do you have a dual approach here or are you solely for the active side of the equation? Yeah, look, it's interesting question. I think sort of by definition, engaging someone like me to manage a portfolio or any wealth advisor or stockbroker is to some degree active management. But as an active manager, I like to incorporate passive funds within the portfolio to give that stability of index returns and you can't really argue with an index return because it's what the market did and and that's performed so you have an underperformed and you have an outperformed and it's interesting I was on a on a call today with Vanguard who do a lot of passive funds and really low cost funds and that's probably one of the benefits that I like because over the longer term your returns aren't eaten away by fees and Vanguard are very good because of their size at reducing the impact of fees on the returns Whereas the benefits of active investing, and you can also achieve this through different funds and ETFs, I think, you can pick up sort of thematics and different areas of the market which are running. So in particular, I looked at one today on semiconductors. So I mean, that could be an area that's very topical at the moment and I think will be over the coming years. So that's really one way you can try and add value to clients' portfolios. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, you kind of already answered our next question, but, you know, we are hearing that a lot of people are more and more interested in ETFs as a way to get, you know, a diversified exposure to, like you mentioned, certain themes or to a benchmark or even, you know, to active management like our previous guest. I guess, you know, are single stock names still driving the majority of the retail market or are you seeing ETFs? and fund management portfolios becoming more important? 
Yeah, I think it really depends on the size. So, I mean, I mean, a typical client I would have on is no less than, say, a quarter of a million dollars, but often or not, we might get relatives of the client or their children or someone that doesn't have a quarter of a million but still wants to engage in the market, in which case we're going to take them on as a client. ETFs and, and managed funds and exchange-traded managed funds are very good ways to get that level of diversification without having to choose individual stock names. I mean, if I produce a portfolio for a quarter of a million dollars and there's 10 stocks, you can sort of get 10 stocks of 25 grand a piece and you get a good amount of diversification. Whereas if, if there's a portfolio of, say, 50,000, to get 10 stock names, you're really going to get eaten away on fees for that size portfolio, which is where an exchange-traded fund can supplement that well. So, yeah, I mean, there's uses for both. There's uses for ETFs in large portfolios and there's uses for individual stock names in small portfolios too, and it really depends. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one. I think, you know, the rise of the sort of retail army that we saw, as sort of M mentioned, um, more probably beginning of this year with, what was it, GameStop? You know, that clearly was a single name stock that just had an extraordinary ride. And I think, you know, there's definitely questions that that raises around, you know, people providing advice versus someone just going and doing something themselves on an app without sort of, I guess, potentially the background behind that specific company or how it runs itself. Um, So I guess in moving on a little bit, you know, I do think even though our podcast isn't global yet, we obviously love to speak about global investing trends, and I'm sure one day the podcast will be a global investing trend, Em. But um, are your clients able to invest globally through you? Does this add an additional layer of costs? We have seen a lot of businesses start up recently that really promote the ability to enter global markets. And I think for those that are potentially not in the know, that hinders their thought process on whether they're able to invest globally, you know, with a domestic broker. So I'm just interested to hear your thoughts around investing globally versus locally. I mean, when you go to uni, you do what's called an asset allocation. Everybody knows it. You don't need a double degree to work it out. Very, very simple. So I think every portfolio needs a global part or an international part of its asset allocation. If you ask any portfolio manager, that's what they'll say. So adding it into a retail client's portfolio, I think is just as important. But do you need individual stock names on a retail client's portfolio globally? If it's large enough, I think yes. But I think in an everyday person's portfolio, you can supplement it well through the use of a fund. But if you really want to go that extra level and invest in an offshore name like Taiwan Semiconductors or or Apple or, or whatever the company may be, you can definitely do it and you can do it at Bell Potter. I'm not sure every broker does it, but that's one of the benefits of a full service stockbroker is being able to invest in an individual or a direct equity offshore and you need a quite a good platform to be able to do that. So in, in our instance, Citibank's our custodian who holds the international stock, but it is a bit more convoluted to get a direct holding in an offshore investment. And does that increase the cost of my portfolio if I did want to invest globally in a single stock name versus a managed fund? I mean, the brokerage rates are comparable. So in that regard, the cost is relatively the same, but you've got foreign exchange risk and that could inadvertently turn up as a cost in the portfolio if the currency moves against you and it can really eat away at your returns if the currency goes against 
Yeah, that's something that I think people maybe don't think about when they're investing overseas is that then they do introduce that FX risk, which is something they really do need to consider as well because it can eat away at your returns. So moving on to kind of a different theme, I guess we wanted to talk a little bit about the IPO market, so initial public offerings. Can you tell us what a pre-IPO fund is and how does having a broker help to facilitate these types of investment options for your clients? Well, I might just start off with a pre-IPO and what it is. A pre-IPO is a pre IPO fundraising round, which is done to help take a company to IPO. And usually there's a lot of costs involved in taking a company through to IPO, like lodging prospectus with ASIC and getting all those pre or junior company stage costs up and running. So a pre IPO fund is a fund that specializes in these junior companies that are ready to list. And often or not, this can be a a US thing. And it's been quite popular in, in the US, particularly with different hedge funds. But there is a way to do it here in Australia. And it is sort of new to the Australian market, but it would form what's part of an alternative asset allocation for clients' portfolios. And I think a typical retail client doesn't really have room for this part in their asset allocation because it is sort of a bit exotic, if you want to put it like that, to an everyday client. So I'd probably warn your everyday person from a pre-IPO fund just because of the risks involved in the types of companies they would invest in. Um, So continuing on the IPO front, there's been more than 80 listings on the ASX this year alone. We've seen some really successful listings performing well in the aftermarket, but also a number of challenged ones. I guess when assessing an IPO's suitability for a client, what are the key things you are looking for? Okay, Clint. Um, Look, I think there's so many different reasons why a company lists and what you should look for if you're going to invest in a company that is listing on the stock market. But I've come up with six reasons that are sort of good checkpoints to look at when a company is listing. So I think the first thing you can look at is the vendor. So what type of company is it? What the management team are doing? And sort of do you understand the business? Because that's quite important to me as an investor when I'm investing on behalf of my clients. You've really got to understand the business because sometimes you can get companies that list and they even go over my head. So why are we trying to invest in a company and get a return on something that could be a little bit off piste and might not really meet a client's investment thesis? The second thing is who are the brokers on the deal? So, I mean, you could get a really small company, but if it's got a really off-paced broker that's not on the deal that you've never heard of, the credibility might not be all that great. The next one would be listing reasons. Why is the company listing on the exchange? Is it to provide liquidity to existing shareholders so they can exit or are they putting more money in? I'd look at how the deal's priced. Is it looking expensive? Is it cheap? That's where you can try and look at research involved. What the demand's like for the stock? Is it a really oversubscribed IPO? Is there not much demand for it? That's very important. And the sector in the market. So is it listing in favourable conditions for its particular sector? I think would be quite important. The next point I just mentioned is if you've got a good relationship with your broker, they'll be able to give you colour on the above six points. They're not yes, no questions, but answering those questions will help you formulate whether or not it's a good deal. And if you could get a clear understanding of those six points, you'll probably get a good idea on how the deal's going to go. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think we kind of as investment managers, we look at a lot of the similar things as well as to whether we will participate in a deal. So that's quite interesting. Absolutely. And I think it's different from the institutional land to the buy side land to the retail land because we're all looking at different 
components to it. You guys are probably cornering deals. We're just adding in shareholders and, and names into the book, but I think you've got to look at it in its entirety. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. I guess moving on to, to yield. So, you know, there is some yield seekers out there. So, you know, stocks do sometimes have a dividend yield. I guess why is this relevant for your clients or retail investors? What is dividend income and why would an investor seek to get a high dividend stock versus capital gains? I think typically a client after yield is a client that wants dividend income to supplement their lifestyle. Not always, but that can be the main reason. So when you think about people who need dividends to live, you think of here in Australia, self-funded retirees who really love dividend-paying stocks and really love franking credits. Some people like dividend-paying stocks because it means the company is mature, it's doing well, it's paying out their earnings And that's a good sign of a quality business, whereas other people like to invest in stocks that are reinvesting their earnings as opposed to paying out their dividends. So typically, I reckon that a client that likes dividends is a bit older and living on the dividends, but it can also be a judgment call on what type of company you want to invest in. But what about like if we think about where else we can get yield in the market? I mean, we we struggle to get it in a bank account because interest rates are so low. So is a high yielding stock or a high yielding portfolio, I guess, an alternative to having, you know, your money in a bank account or because there's that additional equity risk, is that not a good idea? Yeah, I think it's just something you've got to weigh up and Stepping into equity market for the search for yield is probably a big step up from, say, cash in the bank or a term deposit. And I think you guys did an episode recently on fixed income, which is sort of if you're exiting cash in the bank, that's where you would go before you go to equity markets. And then equities, you're probably paying the most in terms of a dividend yield. So, yeah, it's it's all about taking those steps up in risk and being able to understand those steps up in risk. And when you buy a stock for yield, you have to understand that you're risking your capital in the process. And if you stick in good quality stocks that underpin their earnings by strong cash flows and, and all that sort of stuff, you can reduce the risk as opposed to buying a stock that has a typically high dividend yield and end up in a, a yield trap. I guess on a similar vein then, um, you know, I often hear people talking about, especially in the Australian market, franked versus unfranked dividends and you know as I look at it I always sort of don't really get the benefit of either or the difference and it's probably because I haven't done enough research into it so can you explain the key difference and why retail investors are so focused on acquiring franking credits yeah so when you get a franking credit you get the benefit of the franking credit paid back to you when you do your tax return Now, the benefit is most in a zero tax environment, so that's a self-managed super fund. And that's why I mentioned earlier that self-funded retirees are the ones that really derive the most benefit from these franking credits. And the franking credit occurs when the company already pays tax first, and then you're paying tax on that dividend, and that's why you get the benefit back from the franking credit. So if you have a really high marginal tax rate, the franking credit benefit won't be as great as if you're in a low or zero tax environment. And that's why the self-funded retirees are the ones that really want that. It's almost like a chase in the market for yield. And that's what sometimes pushes the market up as well. 
Yeah, great. Thanks for talking us through. It's definitely something that I kind of don't know enough about and that was a good overview. So, look, ESG, we love it. We talk about it here. What I would be really interested to hear from your perspective is to whether your client base is actually choosing to avoid or to invest in stocks due to ESG considerations because, you know, you mentioned most of your clients are kind of $250,000 portfolios and above. And I'd be interested to see if that group of people are interested in ESG and asking about it. Yeah, look, I think it is an important question to ask and it's definitely one I'm starting to get inundated with. And I think a lot of it with people's portfolios, they want to get exposure because they know it's being talked about and whether or not they think it's an important thing or not, then they know that the market is going that way anyway. So I am getting consistently inundated with calls on how to get exposure to ESG. But one of the things I'd say I typically do get a call about that clients will get confused is they'll say, can I get exposure to ESG? And then they'll ask why it's not to do with a direct renewable energy company or a solar panel company. And it's about clearing up the difference. Well, no, you can have a fund that does ESG that is just the top 10 stocks in Australia, which is not necessarily renewable energy, but it's just about having the ESG component and having the management team do their thing and doing the carbon credits and all that sort of stuff to make sure that they're doing their bit to meet their ESG requirements. So I guess educating the retail client base on that difference is quite important. But I think, yeah, it's becoming the forefront of a lot of clients' minds and and just forming that ESG asset allocation to their portfolio, I think would be a big part. Yeah, we've definitely learned that ESG can mean a lot of different things to different people. So it is all about that educational piece. It's really interesting, Em, hearing Jules's response to that, I guess, from someone that doesn't come from an ESG background. And we've had a lot of people on the show, not a lot, but obviously yourself and Nick Varco, when we did do an ESG episode, those different perspectives about what is ESG and, and, you know, what it means to have ESG within a fund and a portfolio is just so varying. So I totally understand how, you know, the average investor just gets very confused by the concept. You know, I've obviously learned a lot more about it as we've gone through this journey. But I guess if you took me back six months ago, I would have little to no idea. So I think it's really interesting everyone's different perspective on it. I guess getting to sort of the end, but not nearly the end, obviously our listeners see that you deal with a, you know, a myriad of different people every day and you have numerous clients. Can you give us a bit of an insight into where do you see the most demand for at the moment? What are the retail cohort most interested in right now? And I guess, you know, second to that, what are some of the most bought stocks in Australia and do you still see upside there? Great question, Clunes. Look, I think a typical retail investor, there's a lot of focus on the top end or the top echelon of the ASX. So looking at the ASX 20, because that's really where the quality businesses are found. The biggest companies, the banks, the miners, West Farmers, and now Afterpay, and any stock that's been big enough to get through to that threshold. So, I mean, for a typical retail client, they're the sorts of stocks that we're talking about on a daily basis and trying to look at those stocks that we think have value. In the current market, I mean, there's a lot of talk about China and geopolitical tensions and iron ore demand and supply. So I personally have had a lot of clients dealing in those sorts of stocks. And that's where a lot of the dividend paying stocks have been 
with the iron ore price so high. So, I mean, iron ore has been the topic of conversation for a while now with clients and just trying to focus on getting quality blue chip businesses at a good price and trying to find thematics in the market that will be around for years to come. Yeah, that's great insight. Thanks, Jules. So, just before we ask our standard final question, I just was interested to know if our listeners were interested in getting a broker, you know, would someone like myself or Clooney be a good client to reach out to you? I mean, you know, we have potentially a little bit of money that we could invest, but we might not meet, you know, that 250,000 mark. Is that a situation in which we could, you know, use someone like yourself? And if so, how would we kind of get in contact? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no real minimum to invest or open an account at Bell Potter. So I think just opening up the door for a conversation is a good starting point. And um, you can, yeah, certainly pick up the phone and and give me a call or or send me an email if you did want to contact me or anyone at the Bell Potter team. So that's very easy to do. And I think, yeah, just getting that first step in making the call. And even if it's not with a full service broker, it could just point you in the right direction to understanding a bit more about the market and helping your own financial knowledge. I think your last point there about just getting in contact with someone and starting a conversation is really where you sort of hit your straps to begin with. And I know you haven't been in the markets for as long as some of our speakers, but um, you have been in for a little while. So we always love to end our podcast with a question that we ask every time as well. So can you give us your top career tip? Well, I think the number one thing I would say is persistence and just being able to stick at it. So no matter what you're doing, you'd just be surprised with which people you'd meet, no matter where it is, whether it's in the office or at a barbecue on the weekend, you never know who's going to be your new client or next person you'll meet who will just point you in the right direction or or be a mentor. So just um, keep being social and, (laughs) and keep at it. That sounds like hashtag networking to me, Clooney. What do you reckon? I think that's definitely hashtag networking them and, and <laughs> hashtag being social. Uh, post-COVID, can't wait to hashtag be social. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Well, that was such an insightful episode. I guess it was probably one of our more high-level overview episodes that we've had, but that was actually really useful just to get context on how all of the different episodes of our previous guests kind of fit into the larger picture. So that was really good and I learned learned a lot about the considerations that go into creating a portfolio as a whole and yeah really valued your insights so thanks so much for coming on Jules we'd love to have you oh pleasure absolute pleasure thank you girls thanks guys have a great evening 